Hello. Okay, that's on. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, I guess, good morning slash good afternoon. We're on the cusp to people here and also to anyone who's watching remotely. Um, I am really excited to have the privilege of introducing Becky Zerbier. And I realized when reviewing her bio sketch and her CV, I literally could spend the entire Grand Rounds just talking about her accolades. I will not, um, but um, Becky came to us this summer. Her background is that she went to medical school at Jefferson Medical College and then, or College of Medicine. Um, she then did her training at Georgetown and then spent some time at a couple little hospitals in Boston, some time in fellowship at Mass General and some time at the Brigham. She has been the director of two breast programs, both um, at Georgetown and at Sibley. Uh, prior to coming here to run our breast imaging program. She has won all kinds of awards from top doctor in the U.S. to teaching prizes. She has been interviewed by everyone from CNN to NPR um, to the New York Times. So she, I could go on and on again, but instead I will introduce her talk. She has been an extraordinary addition to um, Dartmouth and to the breast program and to our radiology department. Thank you and a huge women's health advocate, as you will hear. <laughs> Thank you very much. Dr. Rosen. Thank you. Probably bit just best to end it right there. Okay. I've been asked to state that I don't have any financial interests. I do not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and I attest that I am not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So I don't have any money in Hologic. Uh, digital breast tomosynthesis, the way I'm structuring my talk today is talking about its evolution, and it'll help put maybe breast screening uh, into perspective a little bit better. The technology itself, the data, the applications, and then the limitations. Back in the 1950s, things weren't always happy uh, uh, surfer dude kind of times. Uh, in fact, 50% of women who developed breast cancer died from their disease. So it had a significant mortality rate. And so in response to seeing these uh, tragedies and um, with x-ray mammography, somebody thought to put a breast against a chest x-ray film and snap a picture. And what came out in the 60s was uh, basically um, an image that proved that a woman had a breast and not much else. Uh, so attempts were made in the 70s then to use uh, Xerox technology. And that's what we see here. So there was toner, and there was a big mess on your white jacket because the blue toner would, uh, would wipe off. Georgetown was the last place to get rid of uh, uh, zero uh, radiography in the United States, I believe. They had a big proponent. And then we moved on to film screen. And so in the 1980s, uh, this is a representative film screen mammogram where we took a piece of film, we put it in a box which had a screen to 
kind of um, uh, amplify the waves and convert them uh, to uh, react with silver halide crystals. And that was not so much fun because it had to go through a processor that took about six minutes down to three minutes down to 90 seconds, still not very fast. And the technology was not very good in women who had dense breasts, as you can see here. It was great for finding microcalcifications, but dense breasts were a challenge. In the 1990s, we still had film screen mammography. And again, we had the challenges of developer artifact chemistry imbalances um, and pick off from uh, uh, trauma to the film. And we read our mammograms on these, what were called alternators, and uh, they were batch read. So we still batch read now, but we don't have any more film. And so it separates your storage medium, which uh, was an important uh, advance. Uh, so it wasn't until 2000 that it was impossible to lose a mammogram. <laughs> so uh, patients would sign out their films and forget them in their car or drop them in a puddle and you were sunk. But in 2000, we finally developed the ability to produce images on a computer. And in mammography, the rate-limiting step was developing a monitor with high enough resolution to resolve basically specks of dust to find microcalcifications. So we can resolve with digital mammography 15 line pairs in a single millimeter. And it's the highest resolution imaging in radiology. So it wasn't until 2000 that digital mammography became widely available. So it's a five megapixel display and we have two monitors on which we read these mammograms and we actually blow it up even further so there's one breast in one projection. So it's really optimized people who are getting old and their vision is, is declining. But digital mammography really showed its promise in the problem areas of imaging, which were premenopausal women, women with dense breasts, and women under 50. So with that promise in advance, uh, involving about 50,000 women showing success, digital mammography was approved by the FDA and rapidly came into uh, practice. We were all happy to get rid of those film uh, developers. What it didn't remove, however, were the persistent problems of compression for film screen mammograms, which are overlapping tissues which hide cancers, overlapping tissues that mimic cancers. We have a fixed 10% recall rate, meaning you can do the best mammogram and there'll still be a smudge, irregularity, calcifications for which you'll call a patient back, the dreaded harm of mammography. And honestly, our real concern is that about 15% of breast cancers won't be detected mammographically because of this camouflaging. Sometimes the breast cancers don't read the book to even show up on the mammogram, but that's a, a much smaller number. You may uh, recognize, this is my mentor, but this was the man that actually got the first patent for digital breast tomosynthesis. Interesting with the, uh, it was a GE company, it was not the Hologic unit. GE got the patent and then they sat on it and they didn't think it would really go anywhere. So it went somewhere. So this is how we read them. We, uh, we have x-ray gogs with 3D glasses and not really. 
So digital breast hemosynthesis, its name is a little cumbersome. It's also known shorthand DBT, 3D TOMO, 3D TOMO synthesis, just TOMO, it's all the same thing. It's a series of low-dose exposures at preset intervals. The arc range of the camera is 15 degrees. And a computer actually reconstructs all this data made in a 15-degree swing of the head of the camera into separate leaves, separate slices, that's where the word TOMO comes from, that are viewed by scrolling through a data set. So just to take you through uh, mammography, film screen, you had a film here that the technologists ran out to develop. In 2000, not until the year 2000 did we go digital and make a huge advance, where now we have the image taken and observed right in the room. So that increased throughput. And 2D advanced to tomosynthesis in the year 2011 with a single swing of this mammogram head, that's the mammogram tube, 15 degrees. And I would show you this, I'm afraid it doesn't work, it's a GIF uh, uh, file that doesn't project on this one. But the trick is to remember that it takes a certain amount of time. So in your spare time, don't do it now because some of you are eating. Hold your breath for about 12 seconds. Okay, and that's the amount of time that it takes to compress and take a picture with the arc. So some women aren't well suited for that, and we see them coming down the hallway not very quickly. So in 2011, digital breast tomosynthesis came out. Hologic was uh, approved in the U.S. And here's just an example. Here's a 2D projection of a digital mammogram. This is called the MLO view. We can see with the pectoralis muscle there. I've blown up this area, and there's nothing too abnormal about this, especially compared to the other tissue. In fact, that looks a little denser, too. But now we take a slice. Here are these different pages of information that the computer has reconstructed for us. And all of a sudden, this very elegant speculation is, is blown up and laid out for us. So we turn the page to about page three in this set of images, and there's a slice that's very, very suspicious for malignancy. So this has been a huge, uh, huge improvement. Um, we can tell where things are in the breast, and again, if this uh, GIF image would rotate, which it doesn't, we can see different things at different places. But when you look at just a slab of images, on our current PAC system, for example, when you go to look at TOMO images, you're going to see something like this, a blurry, not very friendly image. So I have to tell you, this isn't the TOMO image. It's a slab. Our current PAC system can't accommodate TOMO synthesis images. So in our next iteration coming, I think, in 2017, if you're planning a vacation, that's the week, um, we're going to be switching over to a new PAC system that will be able to store all these TOMO synthesis images. So as I said before, it separates all the information in the breast into discrete pages. Now, I noticed some, of, some people were taking notes avidly when I was talking about some of the technical aspects. So you can continue on. If that made you really happy, there's one that will really make you happy. This is tomosynthesis physics in a slide. The whole idea of tomosynthesis is gathering information based on a rotating arc-like positioning of our film head, the mammogram film uh, projector. So it takes a picture, if you can imagine, 
this is this, nothing's moving here. You have a circle sitting on a triangle. And if you take a picture from above, it'll look like a circle sitting on a triangle and you won't be able to tell them apart. But when you move your head of your camera over to position number one and you take a picture of the circle on the triangle, it separates them. And then you take a neutral picture. And you can imagine doing this about seven times in real life. That's how the hologic system does it. Seven times on this side, seven times on the other side, coming back to neutral to take its number two shot. And that's the straight on 2D shot that we take. So it's a combination. But if you can imagine, this shift and add reconstruction algorithm is how we produce these beautiful pictures at different levels. So camera one takes a picture with the triangle separated from the circle as such. And number two, it looks on top. And number three, uh, it looks like it's separated with the circle over there. So when we add these all up, at this level of the plane, the plane of the of the um, of plane A, which is the plane of the circle. We have three circles worth, or in hologic land, 15 circles worth of information that blows away the single triangle of information. So plane A, that page of level A, is going to resolve that circle. And alternatively, plane B, which adds up all the triangle information, is going to resolve the triangle. So it's, it's basically producing three-dimensional uh, information, and that's tomosynthesis physics. So February 2011, Hologic, like I said, beat GE out, uh, out of the door, and GE was feeling very regretful because they, they didn't, and now they're catching up. So they have a slightly different way of uh, doing it. Theirs is about a 20-degree arc, a, a different number of images taken, and of course they probably had to take a long time to figure out a catchy name, so Senoclair, and uh, Siemens uh, also got approved. They called theirs the Mammomat Inspiration, so it's all about the market. But Selenia Dimensions is uh, the product we use here. Now, one thing that uh, was astounding to me, I, I have done breast imaging all of my life. I do the right breast, left breast, nothing above, nothing below. And I really thought that um, 3D Tomo was probably for people that weren't so good at reading mammograms until I started using it. So I'm a very uh, cautious person. I don't buy into anything easily. But when I said, uh, this is an example of a case where there's cancer here, and I did not know it until I was able to see a tomographic image of it. And so here is this same tomo slice showing me a small cancer that measures just under a centimeter, and I knew that in a dense breast with complex overlapping tissues, the tomosynthesis was very important. And so here it is again. The standard 2D you would read as normal, heterogeneously dense breast tissue. You would scroll through your series of TOMO images and hit this one. And at this plane, you can see this is a skin marker that's blurry because it's down on a different area that's on the skin, marking a mole, probably right underneath the breast. We have some calcifications. But this structure, especially when you can blow it up on your 5 megapixel monitor, is a very important finding in uh, the treatment and we believe survival of the patient from breast cancer. Again, here's a, another mammogram where I thought, I'm, you know, I got the hang of this mammo reading thing and uh, 
and then I found this hiding in the weeds. So it looks less dense than the normal tissue here, but this speculation, this architectural distortion as if someone took a lemon drop and all the tissues are pulling in is a very important finding. And this is the one where the resident beat me to the punch. And uh, I thought that these were faint nodules, nothing very exciting. And uh, she fortunately flagged this for me to take a second look at. And so this is a very fatty breast. And you would think, well, you can see anything in a fatty breast. How does, how does that help you? Well, the fact is it shows this speculation, which I didn't appreciate initially on this view. And you can see kind of that lucency around it. Things are pulling in. And then you look closer, and there's a second lesion. So this person had multifocal disease and uh, benefited. Uh, she also had a history of breast cancer there. But it works in fatty breasts, too. So I'm, I'm a believer, and I, I wasn't, necessarily. It increases two things. It increases both the sensitivity and the specificity. Now, you can see easily it increases the sensitivity by increasing our ability to see cancers, smaller cancers, better in dense breasts. It also improves our specificity because we decrease the recall rate, okay? And what is the evidence that shows this? The largest trial is the Oslo trial. And Scania was the lead author. It was published in Radiology in 2013. It involved 12,631 women, and it was a prospective trial. And they showed a 40% increase in the detection of invasive cancers. So that was substantial. Um, and a 15% decrease in recalls. So that's not insubstantial also. The STORM trials, we have the Oslo trial and the STORM trial involved 7,292 women. Again, that was a prospective study. And it similarly showed a, a significant increase in invasive breast cancers, cancers in general. But 52 of the 59 were invasive breast cancers. We're not just finding DCIS. We're finding invasive cancers. And there showed also a similar decrease in the recall rate. And then there was the company-sponsored trial. So you always uh, have to look carefully at that. Theirs was a, a retrospective trial. But they went to community hospitals. In fact, when I was in Washington, they went to Washington Radiology Associates. They gave them, I think, about you know, seven units and said, go at it. And we were very jealous because we didn't have one. But they were um, amassing all of this data uh, at several sites, I believe, including uh, Dartmouth. Steve Poplack was uh, involved in the early uh, trials. And so they looked at uh, 454,000-plus examinations. And they looked at it in a retrospective way. And they similarly found a 15% decrease in the recall rate and a 41% increase in invasive cancer detection. So again, I underscore it wasn't just finding controversial cancers, cancers, ductal carcinoma in situ. It was increasing the invasive cancer detection rate. And these are the actual numbers, decreasing the recall rate with statistically significant uh, decreases um, in the recall, increase in the positive predictive value. Every time you call some ba someone back for a mammogram recall, how many times does it end up 
end up being malignancy, um, and that increased, and it increased our ability, uh, our positive predictive value three. Every time we recommend a biopsy, how often does it end up being cancer? And so those were statistically significant. Sure. So it, with a 2D mammogram, only, I, I don't know what PPV for Sure. It's, I'm sorry. In, Mammography is a very structured and federally audited service. So we do audits quarterly, and we have to stay within a certain recall rate. So 100, say 1,000 women come in for a mammogram. We shouldn't be calling more than 100 back. We should keep our recall rate 10% or less. So the question they asked was, how many people actually end up having breast cancer of those 100? And so that number increased. So that's what we call our positive predictive value one. It's a lot of data shuffling. But more importantly, you know, the biopsies. How many times when we say you need a biopsy, does it end up being cancer? And that increased as well. From a volume standpoint, the PPV for recall increase is important because those are 100 people out of 1,000, and we want to decrease that number. So thank you for that question. So the other issue was, uh, let's see, Durand at Yale published in Radiology recently in January, and they found a 37% decrease in recalls, especially those pesky asymmetries, which are a frequent uh, um, problem for us. So it not only re uh, decreased recalls, but we could see it decreasing recalls for the real problem children, which are the overlapping tissues. And I show you this uh, slide just to reinforce that um, baseline mammograms are often a problem for high recall rates. And this author was able to show that baseline mammogram recalls decreased as well, a 22% reduction in recall. And that was more, that was larger than the recall reduction in the non-baseline uh, players. And it was especially pronounced in predictably younger women with denser breasts less than 50 years of age. So how does it do it? As I mentioned, it eliminates structural noise and superimposition. And there are 25% of women get called back because of this overlap, okay, of those 100 women called back, we can probably get rid of 25% of those callbacks, and that's what the data is showing us. And as you saw, it clarifies the shape and margins of masses. So I don't have to call back lymph nodes because I can see their fatty hyla. Uh, this is just another case of how we find invasive cancers, important cancers well. We can define their margins much better. This just looks like a fluffy cloud, similar to that until we have a tomo slice of it. And now we see the characteristic lobulation and spiculation characteristic of malignancy. And these uh, are almost 100% characteristic of malignancy, the lobulated, spiculated mass. And the area of distortion, which you can see here, it has about a 70% positive predictive value for malignancy. So these are important improvements in visualization that we're seeing. And here's how it helps us. It eliminates overlap. And we can scroll through. Again, I'm sorry, these don't tomo out for me on this uh, uh, computer. But we would be able to scroll through and see that this density is nothing more than overlap of a bunch of circles. And we don't have to call this patient back for additional imaging. Here's the case of the improved visualization of, we have an oval density, I'm not sure what it is, but my um, 
Tomo Slice was able to tell me that it's got a little notch in it. It's got a fatty hilum. One less person called back and irritated. And how is it successful in the diagnostic setting? As I mentioned, it decreases callbacks. I'm able to localize lesions seen in one view only, so I can send her right to ultrasound instead of stopping for additional views. It's so quick, uh, they're computerized, they come out at the same time, and it can characterize additional areas of disease. As you remember, this person was earlier on, we could find it in one view. It was really hard to see in the other view. Here's a spot compression 2D, and where is it? We don't know. Luckily, this time-saving component uh, is able to tell us which level we see it at best. So it says it's really in the lower aspect of the right breast. Look down there. And so you can almost put your ultrasound transducer right at 5 o'clock, 3 centimeters from the nipple, and depict this, uh, this lesion measuring 0 0.6 centimeters. Yes? When you have a recall uh, for imaging, what do you do differently? Right. It's another tool in your toolbox. So with, sometimes we have to just resort to 2D because our 3D TOMO unit is taken. So we have to have ways to work things up the old-fashioned way with 2D. We would have to do rolled views, uh, roll the breast one way and see which way it translates. If you roll the top of the breast lateral, if it's in the top, it'll go lateral. So it became problematic, yeah. And this would be a very difficult, tedious workup. So we would do rolled views, spot compression views, standard true lateral views, and... and so it's not cost-effective to do that on the first visit? To do all those? No, in a screening setting. You're uh, screening a 1,000 women, and most of them want to go back to work or have 3 million errands to do, so they can't wait around for the online read, which we're pretty much able to do now. But it does take probably 15 to 20 minutes. So 900 women are, are fine going in and, and going home. And we do call back 100 women who are inconvenienced who do need that extra time. But it's not cost effective in a sustainable healthcare environment to, uh, to do that. So we don't do uh, online callbacks, uh, if you will. But we do try and do online readings, especially in the morning, to decrease the waiting period that women experience. Uh, limitations, yeah. You guessed it. It's four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars per unit. Insurance companies, for the most part, are not paying, but CMS just gave us a code. Um, I will state proudly that here at Dartmouth, we do not charge patients anything. We do not collect any extra money for doing three D tomosynthesis. It's partly philosophical and it's partly practical. It improves. It's better health care in reading mammograms. It improves outcomes. We know this. Why should we be passing on this cost to women who are already having deductibles of you know, $5,000, $8,000? So as a philosophy, we are not charging women any extra for 3D TOMO, unlike many places, including Washington Radiology, that I think was collecting $75 to $100 per mammogram out of pocket from women. So we don't do that here. We just think it's a better study. But we could, and uh, uh, CMS has uh, acknowledged that it costs more to operate and, uh, and, and purchase these machines primarily. So there is about a $50 differential uh, in payments for these. But could I just say you do 
charge CMS, right? No. Why would you? It's not out of pocket for anybody except the government. Yeah. Actually, it's billing, and I'm not sure if they've instated that one yet. It just came out, the CMS codes. So I'm, I'm sure someone will in accounting say we should be uh, pocketing this. Well, because it means another nurse for us or something. Yeah. Uh, entirely possible. Like I said, this yeah, just I mean, rolled out. I, I get forgiving their uh, co Sure. Within the last couple months, I think we're just through the epic transition, so I think they'll be able to catch up to us. Medicare does not provide coverage for tomosynthesis, and uh, most other payers consider the service to be investigational and will not provide a separate payment at this time. This is a quote from uh, May uh, from a Vermont uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield representative who said, it does not meet their criteria, whatever their criteria are, uh, for medical necessity. Uh, I respect that as uh, more extensive outcome studies have not been published as of yet. So we don't know what it will take. Um, I suppose it's just education, evolution, and finally everyone's going to have it and they'll have to cave in. It's, it's, it's not going to be methodical. The other price we pay is large file sizes. Uh, just to summarize this slide, um, we're not allowed to compress the files. They have to be uh, lossless compression, and so the actual number of pixels needed to be saved are the, in one mammogram is the equivalent of a, a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. So these are large storage requirements. And for us, it's a longer interpretation time, especially for the complex uh, breasts where you're trying to, to pick out these smaller masses, about one-third of an increase in our interpretation time. Additional training, you have to be trained with eight hours of initial training. Uh, and then what are the limits in people? Surprisingly, the extremely dense breasts are the most challenging. The distribution of microcalcifications is difficult to see when you're looking at slices. You like to have the overall view. And it brings old surgical scars to life that look very ominous, and it increases our perception. I just had a patient who I thought was a breast cancer, but it was a radial scar. They're in, they're, you can't tell them apart. Here's just the example. This breast looks the same. This is 2D and this is 3D. So you need an interface of fat with the dense tissue to be able to perceive an abnormality. And this person has just one fat locule basically up there. So this is kind of a wash. So these people fortunately account for a very uh, small number, a uh, small percentage of patients. But this is the extreme of the extremely dense breast tissue. And this patient actually had a lump, and we put a marker on it and looked at it with tomosynthesis, and it did not show up. We looked at it with ultrasound, and here's kind of a planar. Here it is in one projection. Here it is in the other, and that was an invasive ductal cancer. So the challenges are still there for people who don't have a lot of contrast in the breast tissue. And then we still have some artifacts. Uh, you'll see these uh, perhaps on some of your uh, images, but uh, the slinky artifact as we roll through, this rolls up and down. Uh, when we take a picture with a skin marker or a dense calcification, these end up contributing to artifacts. So you'll be able to count about 15 slinkies of this one skin marker and about 15 dense calcifications. So the algorithms still need to be perfected to remove this kind of a, an overlap artifact that we have.
And then another frequent question is, what about the dose? And uh, the current standard is to do both a 2D, a standard 2D digital mammogram, and then gather tomosynthesis images of each breast. And the combination is less than three milligrays. And that means nothing to anybody that isn't in radiology, except that the federal government said uh, it can't be above, I think, five milligrays. So it's within federal standards. And it's about what old film screen mammogram doses were. And to get around that, because it's never good to have more dose, they've created what they call C-View, or synthetic 2D images, basically recreating a 2D image from your stack of 3D Tomo slices. It was called Genius, and it was approved in May of 2013. I don't like it. I've said before, it's like looking at a mammogram through a wet windshield, and we have all this problem with artifact uh, still. So this is a genius, uh, recreated, reconstructed 2D image uh, from 3D slices. And that's the plain old standard 2D image that we would take. So artifact is still a problem. And again, it looks schmeary to me. I, I just don't like it. And the other limit is, it's true, lack of extensive outcome studies. How much can we do? What can we afford? How long will we wait uh, before we just admit that these are actually really good mammograms? Finally, I mentioned one thing. I really didn't think this was going to work. But we can do biopsies on people sitting up. Most other places, everywhere else I've been, does them uh, laying down prone. This is called the stereotactic table, where you take angled views, stereo views. And believe it or not, we do them all. We're um, moving away from that. This takes a long time. It's You have to do two sets of images, another two sets of images, another set of images. And it's about a 15 to 20 minute procedure with a patient. And you can see the consternation in her, in her brow there. Uh, here, we take one picture. Here's a Tomo slice of the calcifications that we want. At our computer, we, we put our uh, fiducial down, and we're off to the races. We come around, numb up the skin, make a small skin nick, put the probe in. Our technologists are making wonderful, distracting chatter with the patient. It goes in, it sucks out the tissue, and she's done. So when we get this down to a less than 10-minute procedure, that's a great thing for patients. And the other thing to point out, uh, uh, Carrie, this was our case, I think, high-risk MRI screening. Now we're producing images that look just like 3D imaging, like MRI. Uh, so I was able to find this uh, small nodule, which was new compared to prior studies, in a woman with a really strong family history of breast cancer. And here's the MRI showing the nodule there. And because of my ability to look at tomosynthesis images, again, I can't show you the scroll, I could find this in this mammogram. And because I could find it mammographically, I was able to do a 5-minute to 10-minute tomo-guided core biopsy. I was able to isolate that lesion. So now our stereo table is just like the, uh, the workout gym that you have in your house. We, we just put our old towels on it, and we're trying to sell it to someone. So. <laughs>
So continued evolutions, uh, improving algorithms to eliminate artifacts, uh, tomo-guided core biopsies and localizations. That's the one other thing we can do is a tomo-guided localization. And since you saw how we can make um, a mammogram now look like the rest of our three-dimensional images that we obtain, CAT scans and MRIs and PET scans and ultrasound, we can start to do potentially fusion imaging and get cross-information that's anatomically relevant. So is it standard of care? No, I don't, I don't think so. Insurance companies don't think so. <laughs> but um, it is simply a better mammogram with enormous potential. And about, uh, I guess now the last count was about 60% of facilities have at least one TOMO unit. And so it's, it's growing and it's increasing. And uh, so I think it's going, to be, it's going to be standard of care in another five years probably. And with that... I'll say thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions and invite any other questions that you may have. Everybody got the physics part? That's the limiting factor in mammography. And the physics down. Yes? So in the clinic, how do you decide who Great question. And that went through an evolution because women, um, in, when I first came here, they would ask women, do you want a Tomo? Like, do you want fries with that? And they didn't really have, uh, you know, comfort. Our schedulers weren't comfortable. The patients weren't comfortable getting this recommendation from a scheduler. Uh, so we felt we had a group decision. We said, we think it's good enough for everybody. We should offer it to everybody. And so we do tell them, you know, we're, we're recommending or we're advising or you can have 3D TOMO. If, and if they say no thanks or have any questions, we, we discuss it and they can have a 2D image. But we encourage everyone to have it because we think it works better in everybody. So if there's not enough room, it, it hasn't become a problem yet. But we have three units over in screening to our... 3D, one's the old-fashioned old fashioned two-dimensional digital. So uh, it hasn't become a problem yet. But some people say no thanks. Other people we decide because of their infirmity or inability to hold their breath or stand that they aren't really eligible for it. So motion, Parkinsonian women, not good. That shutter effect uh, will blur the image. So we want a short, fast uh, click. Thank you. Yes? Um, I wonder why you Great question, yes, yes. And the answer there is in evaluating microcalcification distribution, for one. It's hard to see. One of the important things is seeing how calcifications are distributed. Are they tightly concentrated? Are they in a line? And when you separate them out into slices, you don't appreciate the distribution as well. That's one thing. And then the other thing is to look for sometimes um, you need to see the forest for the trees. Larger asymmetries that are changes between examinations are difficult to perceive on slices. So, so that's pro those are the two main reasons that we still recommend a standard 2D. But that's a great question, too. They've tried to get away with it, and, and they found that you can't. So. Oh, I, I saw the 3D, like one slice, like one angle should be equal to the 2D. That's not true. Correct. The, the one angle that it creates is a blurrier depiction of a 2D, so it's not acceptable if, that's, if I'm understanding your question. Yeah. The 3D creates um, slices in that same projection. 
but we want them all merged together to get a better depiction of the distribution of calcifications as well as larger asymmetries that may be difficult to perceive in slices. Yes? Is insurance a consideration nowadays when considering 3D? I mean, do you think that it matters, like who's getting it in your uh, it, it will. We try to take the financial question off the table by not billing the patient. And, uh, but it is a factor, I think, out in the real world, the lower 48 states, uh, where women are confronted with $75 out of pocket. You know, that's a not inconsiderable. So um, I, I think it'll be an issue elsewhere. And, and could you comment on the need for a, a trial? Well, you know, I would say, I would honestly say no, because um, the, the digital, 2D digital was accepted, FDA approved and accepted by insurers with one-fourth as many people evaluated. So in my opinion, there have been four times as many people involved in prospective trials. And just the practical, how much data metric do you need before we're all going to be doing it anyway, and it becomes a moot point. Um, so I, I think this is going to be one of those things where the technology is so impressive for the, at the user end, at the individual user end, uh, that you can, you can get some more studies, but they're all consistent. They're all showing an improved detection of invasive cancers, and they're all showing a decreased recall rate. So I don't, I don't know what the magic number is, what the magic threshold is, but if it were 2D digital, we would have passed it, um, you know, several thousand women ago. Sure. You know, I haven't looked at it lately. It's a mixed bag, but in general, most haven't. They were waiting to see what uh, CMS did, and CMS just said, uh, we'll give you some codes at effective January 1. And so, and so every, all the, everybody will start falling into place, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no. Like I said, I, I, I'm an expert in breast imaging and reading mammograms with almost 25 years of just doing breast, 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 and breast. And I'm as far out on that curve as you can be, and I was a doubter, and now I'm not. So, and I, again, no hologic stock, none. I, I was, <laughs> yeah. Yes? As micro-care You know, it's funny. There's that one picture. It does show them crisper and whiter. And they actually said that they wouldn't show up better, but they do show up better. Their distribution doesn't show up better. So their individual particles do. Their distribution doesn't. Yes? So does the availability change the calculus in terms of deciding who needs breast MRI for high-risk screening? Not yet. Particularly as breast yeah. MRI is becoming less and less available because it's not covered for screening by Medicare. Correct, correct. Well, it's covered by this 
Everything with that CMS ruling with uh, MRI for breast cancer in high risk, I thought was the CAD component, as, as far as I understood, that you had to sign an ABN, an advanced beneficiary notice, for just that CAD portion, which costs about $200. And CAD isn't an option in breast MRI. It's, it's an important uh, computerized algorithm that we use to analyze the kinetics, how fast it takes up contrast and how fast it goes out. Anyway, so I, I'm not sure that CMS doesn't cover MRI, doesn't, it makes it harder for good people like you who want to get high-risk screening done in Medicare uh, patients. Uh, so um, that being said, it's not a replacement. It doesn't as effectively depict the extent of disease. Uh, the MRI is the highest sensitivity, and it depends on a different factor. We depend on X-ray attenuation. You saw the dense breast, concrete on concrete, and you don't see anything. So uh, it, it's showing the vascularity, the functional vascularity of tumor versus non-tumor in MRI. And that's a much more uh, sensitive feature that um, we won't be able to exploit with TOMO. TOMO still is dependent on X-ray attenuation, and that's not as sensitive as the, as the vascularity of the tumor. Yes? Becky, the history lesson was great. And I have a question about recalls, which happened for a variety of reasons. Um, when in the history of all of this did those start being referred to as false positives? Or I don't, I don't, I've never had a recall, but I bet there's nobody that calls and says, we think you have cancer, please come back. They call and say, we'd like to take another peek. Correct, correct. And, and that, um, unfortunately, is, is one of the great arguments that we have with people that suggest that mammography creates too many harms. We don't consider a callback for additional views. We've been doing um, mammography screening now in an organized fashion since the late 1980s, and we have it pretty well down pat. We create an expectation. We educate a patient. We have letters that we're mandated to send that we cushion with, this is usually only to clarify a minor area of concern. So we, I don't believe that it's truly a harm or a false positive, and its false positive rate is no greater than other things like cervical cancer screening, where you know that's a bit of an inconvenience to be called back. But they have about a 10% callback rate. And like I said, it's very uh, strongly audited. We can measure who's over-reading or under-reading and, and correct. Yes? Of those recalls, what percent are resolved? Uh, the easy way to look at it is 1,000 people get a screening mammogram, 100 get called back for additional views, 10 of, that one, of those 100 actually are recommended for a biopsy. Two to three of those 10 original 1,000 women will have a minimally invasive core biopsy, which we're now doing pretty much on the same day of her callback, um, to resolve the issue. So that's uh, 10 people have biopsies. Two of them are cancers. But those 10 biopsies are typically done minimally invasively, local anesthetic, in and out. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I found it curious that you can't compress these files in order to save them. So, are there like I mean, we don't charge for it, and sixty percent of hospitals don't do this. So, where does the obligation to keep every single slice come from? Oh, uh, 
the government, I suppose, just as as radiologists who need to compare. Just today, I read a batch of 50 mammograms in a four-hour period, and the one thing that I had to resolve, I depended on looking at an old tomo, old, two years old tomo to resolve. I found a little nodule that I only saw on the MLO from this year that I wanted to see last year. So I think I think it's driven a lot by the urge to preserve as much information as possible in breast cancer. So there's an emotional overlay. Is it practical? It may be, because today it worked for me. I had high-quality Tomo images that I could compare down to the same level of resolution. But we're going we're gonna to put you in charge. No, but I <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, I was wondering if, if a woman comes back for screening a year later or two years later, can you discard the file from the previous? Oh, no. Oh, no. And we're mandated even to preserve film screen mammograms, data images for 10 years. Um, and you can't let them go. Yeah. Otherwise, the MQSA police come and you're dragged off in the middle of the night. Well, thank you. Wonderful questions. Anything else before I... I go to Concord to talk about breast density legislation. Boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. You need an antibiotic for that. Thank you.